0: Hello everybody, and welcome to the Decouple podcast, where we explore the science and technologies that can decouple human well-being from its ecological impacts, and the politics that can make decoupling possible. Welcome back to Decouple. Today I'm joined by Edgardo Sepulveda. A regulatory economist who specializes in telecommunications policy with an interest in electricity and decarbonization. Edgardo, welcome to Decouple.
1: Thank you, Chris. Very pleased to be uh, to be joining you. I've been a big fan for, for quite uh, quite some time.
0: Wonderful. I mean, so, Edgardo, you're following in uh, the fine tradition of uh, a couple other guests of mine who have reached out to me. You said you enjoyed the podcast. Um, you're interested in a certain topic, and uh, that's been a real joy of of podcasting is is being contacted and having these kind of side conversations. And um, you're a regulatory economist. This is an area that I'm quite unfamiliar with. I, I tend to kind of maybe even over prepare for my podcasts, and so I might have been um, procrastinating a little bit in having you on. But I think it's time that I deep dive into this topic. <laughs> Um, right. Certainly, you know I had Meredith Angwin Meredith Angwin on uh, to talk about her book Shorting the Grid, and I kind of studiously stayed to certain topics within her book and dodged some of the issues around you know RTO, regional transmission organizations, et cetera, But it's time for me to to face my demons and and dive on in. So um, why don't you do that famous decouple thing and just introduce yourself uh, to the audience, uh, give us that human touch, or, or why you're interested in this topic? Great. Um, So, I am, uh, 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 I've been uh, uh, uh,
1: in the telecommunications field for about 25 years now, I, my back, my professional background is, is, uh, is in economics, Um, uh, I worked uh, down on, uh, on, uh, on Bay Street for about 10 years, uh, doing consulting and then went uh, independent about 15 years ago. Um, my background, I was born in Chile, so I'm a newcomer to Canada. My first language is Spanish. And one of the things that I, I, I want to talk about is, is um, the way in which uh, some of these regulatory economics ideas have kind of filtered around the world uh, in Chile, in France, in the U.S., in the U.K.,
0: and in Canada as well. So um, uh, that's one of the things that I'm excited to talk to you about. Wonderful. I mean, again, for the audience, what we're really looking at discussing today is, is I think deregulation of electricity markets. I didn't actually know that you were a Chilean and obviously Chile was this kind of laboratory for kind of ultra neoliberal Chicago boys policy. So that, that brings an interesting side to this, you know, in terms of uh, you know, how this has come up for me so far in this, this podcasting journey, I think probably one of my earlier episodes where I was talking with Ted Nordhaus and and we were discussing uh, nuclear actually, surprise, surprise to my audience, Um, and and we were talking a little bit about, you know, climate change is this wicked problem, talking about it a bit as if it were diabetes, um, but also talking about, um, you know, in in Ted's worldview, you know, I I kind of refer to him as the sort of arch pragmatist, eco-modernist that, listen, while it may be the quickest and most effective way to do, you know, what we've done historically, these, um, you know serialized build-outs of gigawatt scale nuclear you know supported by the state um, this is just not conceivable anymore in, in the modern world in which we live the markets have been have been liberalized and and sort of when I was digesting that and thinking about that after the episode I was thinking a lot about it as you know maybe climate change is a bit like diabetes that's a decent metaphor but you know it's kind of like as if the whole society has diabetes in a sense it's going to impact everybody I mean certain people will be less impacted but if we want to take a kind of environmental justice approach, or just be optimally effective, then we need to be thinking about healthcare as, you know, Medicare versus, uh, you know, a liberalized healthcare market, which would be kind of privatized healthcare. And that's sort of like Canada, US healthcare comparison, I think is is very interesting. And, and those calls for Medicare for all, I think there should be an echo of that in terms of how we think about the underlying uh, energy economics that that shape our climate solutions and our and our energy transition. So you know that was part of why I was really really stoked to have you on. Um, you know, I the the other thing that's that's come up again in the podcast is conversations with uh, figures like Robert Bryce, where we've talked a bit about um, you know his evolving view of you know electricity as a commodity versus electric. You know, after experiencing the Texas blackout, starting to think about electricity as an essential good or even a human right. right. And I think yep. you know, from that South American perspective, you know, there's been the water wars in Bolivia over attempts to privatize uh, water uh, services. So I think there's there's so much to unpack here with you. Um, where do, where do you want to get started in this conversation? I'll let you uh, direct the show to a degree.
1: Sure. Um, yeah. I mean, those are those are all issues that are super important. Um, but but I think it is. It, Uh, one of the things that, because I'm a relative newcomer to the electricity space, uh, uh, really only became interested in it about five years ago, six years ago, um, in the context of the extremely political and important and and economic uh, controversy around uh, electricity prices here in Ontario, Canada, um, I kind of had the benefit of kind of being able to study this rather from an kind of academic historical perspective in, uh, for uh, the electricity sector, because my background was in telecommunications. Now, you know, both telecommunications and electricity are more or less studied in the same way by economists. So, I already had a kind of like a foot up in, in, in that context. They're both what we call network industries. They have traditionally been um, uh, monopolists, they've been kind of regulated. Um, many of the same economists um, analyze both sectors. So, there's a lot of commonalities there. So, I had a bit of a head start on that. Um, but so, I, what are, one of the things I wanted to discuss was a bit of the history, not going too far back, a bit of the history of uh, what I learned when I was doing this research in terms of the electricity sector, not just in Canada, but also I wanted to focus in the US, in the UK and in France and in other countries to kind of see how we got to where we are, because I think that's one of the most important aspects to be able to understand how the electricity sector can contribute towards this, this goal of decarbonization and kind of in terms of the climate um because some things uh, after you know let's say about 140 years of experimentation some things we know work and some things do not work mm-hmm. and so in terms of evidence in terms of what the current thinking is amongst most um uh, electricity economists or energy economists i wanted to kind of bring that to the table from that perspective um and so uh, if I can kick off on that, that would be great.
0: So, I mean, in our in our little pre-recording conversation, we came up with this idea of of walking through, I, I guess, kind of the history of regulation of electricity. That might sound incredibly boring to listeners, but <laughs> I think you know maybe starting with with sure. like the initial grid, I guess, right? I yeah, mean,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. That would be
0: kind of, I guess, Edison's experiment in New York, and and how did that progress? How how have things evolved in terms of grid regulation?
1: Sure, sure. So so. Um, uh, you know, most, most of the public uh, electricity sort of started, I think 1880s, um, and it was mostly done for straight up lighting, uh, public lighting, municipal lighting, um, and also for the running of, of, uh, of street cars, right? Mm-hmm. So in most countries, that's the way it, it, it happened. It happened here in Toronto. Um, in, in, in France, uh, in the UK with the tramways, et cetera. So initially, uh, all of that was private, right? Um, it was all done by, by entrepreneurs who, decided, who saw the need and said, oh, we're going to start, you know, generating um, electricity uh, to sell to private consumers or to municipalities to be able to, for example, light the streets. Um, And so at that point, um, uh, and that more or less remained the same uh, for the next 20 or 30 years, whereby, whether you look at this, you know, the introduction of electricity in Chile, in France, in the UK, uh, and especially in the US, it was all private entrepreneurs, basically, uh, were given the authority to construct uh, these networks, because they were using the public uh, public streets, um, in return for a concession from from the city. Um and the concession um, was a contract, basically, and it laid out the way in which uh, the entrepreneur would provide the service, the conditions, and the pricing, okay. right? And so there was no, there was no, at that point, that was the form of regulation. And then um, after a little while, um, uh, especially in the U.S., and this is where kind of like the U.S. were were sort of the intellectual leaders in this respect is that they started thinking, look, these concessions, this management of concessions by municipalities is kind of cumbersome. This is a very important public interest. And so therefore we're going to establish Uh, special state-level public um, utility commissions or public service commissions that are going to regulate, um, from an economic perspective, not only these um, private companies that were providing that we're providing electricity, but also that we're providing sewage services, that we're providing uh, telecom services, et cetera. So that's where you first establish the idea of, of economic regulation whereby um, the, the state starts to provide some kind of public control on what is otherwise private enterprise. Right. And so you know the New York State uh, Public Service Commission gets established in 1907. If I, don't, if I remember correctly, Illinois was in the next few years, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and these, these entrepreneurs around the world uh, start to establish these, these uh, uh, small uh, disjointed uh, electricity companies. Um, but already at that point, there is some calls for, um, for public power. For public control, direct control, um, and is one that, of is the that coming pi- out of?
0: Is that coming like how recent is that? Is that coming out of kind of New Deal politics or no? Anything? It's even
1: before that. I mean, okay. one of one of the world pioneers in public power was our own Adam Beck here in in Ontario, who established the you know what is uh, what was to be known the uh, Ontario Hydro, right? right. And okay. so they they did it in 1906. It's one of the first instances of of public power generation truly kind of revolutionary but yeah soon thereafter you get um the new deal you get the the tele, the tva the 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 tennessee
0: valley authority public power um and starting to drop again but is this is this emerging out of like a certain type of like class politics or i'm just, I'm just thinking like these entrepreneurs are unlikely to want to just kind of give up their no no, their no. control. It's what are what are the what's the political circumstances? Because I think we're going to talk later about deregulation in the. We are going to talk about to that, that. Yeah, but yeah, yeah, yeah. What led to this transition? I think it sounds like there's kind of three stages. There's this kind of private entrepreneurial stage, there's this public right. power stage, and deregulation. So I just want to understand, you know, the sure. political forces that that shape those transitions.
1: Well, for example, in the you know in the United States, where most of the uh, most of these kind of um, uh, economic and regulatory uh, battles were fought, um, a lot of it had to do with um, the, what they were called the robber barons of the 1880s, 1890s, like the right. Vanderbilts of the world, that, that in the context of, a, of the progressive movement in the United States, uh, by the progressive party, um, established this pushback what is called antitrust, including the Sherman act in 1890, the establishment of all kinds of, 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 of processes and procedures to protect the public interest against these rubber barons who not only own the railways, but the banks and the steel companies and also the, uh, electricity companies, right. right? These are large, large conglomerates. And so there's this pushback, um, after the initial establishment of, the, uh, of these large electricity companies, there was this pushback, political pushback, um, to, um, to be able to exert some form of public control. Now, the idea of public power, that is to say publicly owned power, doesn't really take off in, in the U.S. until the New Deal. Gotcha. Right, okay. and and the establishment, for example, of the Tennessee Tennessee Valley Authority, um, but the idea of public power in terms of publicly owned uh, uh, electricity companies. Again, one of the pioneers was you know Adam Beck here in Ontario that established the uh, Ontario Hydro. Um, but so there's this idea of this um, balance between. Public control of a private enterprise, and also direct public ownership of the of the actual entity, right. and that particular development doesn't really happen until um, the Second World War, or until after the Second World War, right? So, in the Second World War is when, for example, France coming out of out of uh, the very costly Second World War, and Uh, decides that as a form of nation building and control of nation building, that they will um, nationalize the 200, 300 plus little entities that were providing power in France into one company, EDF. So EDF gets formed and nationalized in 1946, one year after the the end of the Second World War. Um, In the UK... The Central Electricity Generation Board, the CEGB, that was the state-owned enterprise, was formed in
0: 1947.
1: Okay. Right? Uh, Hydro-Quebec, that's uh, right, Hydro-Quebec starts uh, with the initial uh, uh, nationalization uh, of the, uh, the Anglo-owned um, generating uh, uh, company in Montreal in 1946. Fascinating. Right? Um, in um, it's in 1947 that the Chilean government first does its nationalization of half of the electricity sector in mm-hmm. Chile. Okay. Right. So, so what's happening here is that after Second World War, there's this 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 idea, this ideology, let's call it, of state-led development and it is it is throughout the 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 west
0: uh the developed west um and, and it, is that it, again in terms of the the politics driving that um I'm a little shady in this area but certainly sure. my understanding uh probably my mother was telling me this about uh, the second world war was there was a real promise to the soldiers that you know you were going to come back and get a better life like you were fighting not just the enemy but for a better country and that there was some kind of compromises that needed to be made against we think about these kind of the tendency of capitalism potentially to create this kind of robber baron class and accumulate right. gross inequalities. Was that part of what this post-war was about? Or was it just also that this was the most efficient way to rebuild your nation and, and its uh, underlying infrastructure?
1: Well, it, you know, it, it's a little bit similar, Chris, to the situation that we have now, whereby, um, you know, over the last 20 or 30 years, 40 years of neoliberalism, we've always been told you know, government can't do this, government can't do that. And right. now we're coming back with you, actually government can do a lot. And so you feel this kind of liberation of what government can and cannot do. That was more or less the same situation back in the 20s, 30s and 40s. You're meaning you in through- the
0: context of COVID, is that right? Yes, in the context yeah. of
1: COVID and comparing it to in the context of the Second World War, which right. is this huge mobilization of economic resources where the state takes over basically central planning in yeah. most, of, in most of, the, of, the, of the West. And so, um, so ideologically, there's this move towards that. Um, and also monetarily, the state can actually do that um governments back in the 1880s, 1890s were relatively very, very small. Um, most governments were about a quarter the size of what they are now. And what I mean by that is that if you look at um, the size of the economy that is uh, controlled by the government through taxes or expenditures, depending on which country you' you're, you're thinking about, but Canada, the US, France, are anywhere between 35, 45 to 50% of the economy um, is, is, is sort of uh, socialized. Um, uh, back in the day, in 1880s, 1890s, it was 10% across wow. the world. The reason being is that there's no income tax. I mean, the governments basically did virtually nothing. There was no Medicare, there was mm. no public education, uh, there was no unemployment insurance, there was nothing, right? right? You know, There was just barely the police uh maybe you know military that was it and so so if the government had no fiscal capacity to do this right right and so it was necessarily the case that it was up to entrepreneurs to actually provide to provide these services back in the 1880s 90s and so there was so it was only um it was only after the second World war with the introduction of 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 income taxes, the size and scope of the government, that the government felt sufficiently confident to be able to undertake this process, plus in combination with this new ideology of state-led development. So those two things come together. And then you have this huge consolidation of of electricity companies around the world. Um, And then, Together with that, what you get is this huge growth in electricity, right? right, right. Um, uh, and you have this institutional development in terms of the way in which these uh, uh, vertically integrated companies are are regulated, managed, um, and 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 can grow. So it's it's at that point that you start to develop. Uh, what we refer to as sort of traditional economic regulation, which is what's called, uh, it's got a bunch of different names depending on where you're where you're from, but it's kind of cost of service, COS or rate of return, which basically says, look, um, we have this uh, economic, what was referred to as a market failure, which is basically says that um, competition is neither sustainable nor efficient in this sector. Right? because of the specific um, economic um, characteristics of this sector. Um, and so therefore, we should regulate it. And the way that we're going to regulate it, we're going to kind of um, try to reach the same kinds of results as if there was competition. So okay. we're going to kind of like have this regulatory process that is going to be a proxy for real competition. right? And so the way that you did that is that Every three or four years, uh, a company would go to the regulator and say, listen, I, I, my, my load is, expo- is, is expanding by X percent. I'm gonna have to invest X percent uh, in, in terms of new generation, transmission, distribution. Um, and, and I would like to seek uh, a rate increase to be able to finance uh, uh, this, this growth. And so the regulator would kind of say okay look yeah that's good that's good no that's not good i don't agree with that i don't believe that forecast etc you'd have in you know parties who are interested in that process participate in it and then at the end of which you'd say yes um you know i am going to be approving that you know you build this nuclear generator and that you build this dam um and part of the process of that was that there was this what's referred to as a regulatory contract or compact which is to say that because we have this deal between the regulatory agency and regulated entity whereby i restrict how much money you can make uh but I protect you from competition because it's monopoly um I'm going to guarantee that once uh, I approve of a certain investment i'm going to guarantee that you are able to recoup your yeah. investment and how, right. how does
0: that come because we're talking really broadly right we were we were bringing in yep. an example of you know france ontario the u k chile yeah yep. um so uh, you know it, there's Ontario Hydro, or there's EDF in France. Um, yeah. Are you describing more of a US situation? I mean, in terms of this era, we're talking about even if it's a private utility, it's it's like this uh, vertically integrated, it's, it's generation, transmission, distribution. Yep, yeah. yep. Yeah. Um, so so is that in the states is there like one utility are there competing utilities or just- it would be one utility it would okay. be one utility so this is this is would the capture pre- one region so you, like this is that's your right. region. here you go that's right that's okay. right so this is a private pre- in the u.s it's a private utility it's
1: mostly private exactly
0: okay. exactly except tva um, is public is that right a
1: tva is public and they don't get regulated they they're they do at cost Right. They do at cost. But Ontario Hydro, for instance, or Hydro Quebec or EDF would have something similar. Okay, Um, And basically, um, that's a way in which investment was was promoted. Right. It was it was it was done in the context of a monopoly environment. That is to say that I wasn't competing with anyone else. So it was, for example, I don't know. PG and E in California didn't have to compete. They had their own serving area, and they had to go to the the, the California Public Utility Commission and and ask for this kind of rate increase or right. rate decrease, depending upon how it went. In Ontario, it would be Ontario Hydro would go to the Ontario Energy Board, gotcha. et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So you'd have these regional monopolies, whether it's private or public, and they would be they would be able to invest. With more or less legal certainty, they they would be able to recoup their costs. So the what? Like and-
0: a, a couple of the criticisms I've heard, one is um, you know this favored sort of overbuilding of generation capacity because if you could sort of convince the regulator that you needed this new resource, as you were saying, you were kind of guaranteed that you're going to recoup your costs. Right. Which I guess you know as we've seen with with Texas and this kind of we'll get into that later I think, but this yeah. energy only market where the kind of residual capacity was basically a hairbreadth. Um, yeah, and, and led to these massive blackouts that wouldn't have been a problem. I mean, I forget what the overbuild rate is, I think it's 150% or something to, to guarantee right. a certain amount of grid reliability. Yeah. Um, and then the other thing is, you know, it's interesting In preparing for this interview, I just I was trying to cram quickly. So I was watching a few YouTube <laughs> for YouTube videos, and they're all put out by companies that are involved in this kind of middleman trading of, right. of these. Yeah deregulated products but you know they're saying well listen there's customer service is really poor because you know as a consumer you couldn't go anywhere else that's it Um, that's it yeah 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 no no I mean look
1: it's we you've got to I mean you know just in terms of assessment you've got to recognize its pros and cons and at the time um, uh, it was very successful in a certain number of things right? right it was not successful in terms of consumer friendliness because they're monopolists right and whether Mm. private or public monopolists they're not known for their you know for their customer relations
0: being nice on the phone or something that's right
1: that's right you know it's like it's like basically think of Henry Ford and saying look you can have any color car you want as long as it's black right Mm. I mean back in the day you could you know for for uh you know the Bell telephone company you could have one phone it was black
0: Okay. This right. this There's was no- the other the other YouTube uh, the, the other YouTube uh, video I watched on this was saying you know if we hadn't deregulated electricity uh, the way we right. deregulated telecoms like if we hadn't deregulated telecoms we'd all still have like you know wired phones we would never have gone wireless so yeah I mean you yeah. you've studied telecommunications oh
1: yeah no no yeah and that's that's a whole story but yeah I mean yeah. that's the idea and the, and the thing is is that. Uh, like but, but I mean, of- electricity,
0: it's different products. They're talking about innovation, sparking and, and creating you know things right. like the iPhone. And, and within energy, I think like there's this huge tendency to sort of compare and apply the Moore's law and think mm. about energy generation the same way you'd think about yeah. you know developing these consumer products. And I mean, it's yeah. not that you generate radically different products. You're still the power plants haven't changed drastically. There's certainly... <laughs> some moves no, in that direction no, but
1: no no, no it, yeah and it's yeah exactly it's a commodity and so and so i i wanted to get a little bit into that and i'll, I'll move on to the next uh, phase chris sure, because yeah. I, I just wanted to make sure that we we kind of understood what the old model was what the yeah. traditional model was that was that was that served us uh in my opinion very well for about 45 years okay right so so what you get is um from like After the Second World War, to about 1980, 1985, so you know maybe even the 1990s. So you're talking about 35, 40 years. You had huge growth uh, in terms of the electricity sector, right? So just looking at some graphs here that I that I turned out, you know, earlier earlier in the in the morning. In in the in Canada, uh, the uh, load. In 1945, so the total generation was 43 terawatt hours. By by 1987, uh, so whatever that is, that is uh, some uh, 42 years. It's 482. Wow. Okay. So, ten times. Yeah. Right. So that's 10 terawatt hours a year, and it was a growth of about six percent. Um, in the U.S., um, uh, load in 1950 was 335 terawatt hours. Um, by 2000, it was uh, 3,800. Again, 5% growth. Literally 12 times the growth, right? And, and so the idea that um, there was overcapacity, the, 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 it was actually not, I mean, of the many critiques, the critique of having too much investment was, was, was not really that important in the context of a hugely electrifying
0: uh, society. Which, which is interesting in our current context because, you know, there's controversy about, especially in Ontario, about building new assets We're you know, apparently right. oversupplied. Um, there's not an absolute need for more electricity, but in the context of deep decarbonization and trying to electrify most things, that's you exactly know, it. We probably need to do a similar kind of build out and have similar growth of electricity every year. And what what model serves us best to do that? Is it this liberalized model or that's this, exactly that's right.
1: exactly the one of the, that's one of the things I wanted to finish because because you have this model that allows you to to basically um, uh, increase your your load by by 10 times yeah. in two generations. Yeah. Okay in two generations um and the current process uh again it's not just an electricity sector issue it's also just economic growth issue but over the last 20 or 30 years not only here but you know around the world we basically had flat demand right right so you know in 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 Canada after 1987 um you know, we increased demand by 1%, you know, compared to 6%, you know, after Second World War. In the United States, um, it was actually since 2000, it's increased at 0.3%, right? right? So basically no growth. Um, uh, And, you know, and we're gonna have to double or triple the amount of electricity generated, you know, if we wanna reach our decarbonization objectives by 2050, right? So you've got to be started thinking about, yes, there are pros and cons of each of these two models, but if you actually want to err on the side of a model that provides you with even more investment that you actually want, Right. You know, it's obvious which of the models that that is more uh, attractive from that perspective.
0: And we're going to get into this, but I certainly want to bookmark this because, you know, Ontario uh, in the early 2000s embarked on a plan to add a bunch more capacity in this sense. It was under Mm -hmm. the Green Energy Act. I I jokingly Mm -hmm. refer to Ontario as the France of North America because we have a high amount of nuclear. But we attempted to become the Germany of North America with this Green Energy Act and following a kind of an energy vendor plan. But right. to finance it, it wasn't you know this government structure. It was let's hand out these juicy, juicy contracts and encourage private investment. Yeah, that's and very before much. We, it. I do want to definitely get to that, but before we get on that, let's just kind of finish that story, this yep. transition through these models. Yep. We're getting into yep. deregulation now. We're into getting the, into reg- deregulation liberal project So that's it. Why, that's it. Why does why do things change? Where's the pressure coming from? What are the underlying politics and what happens? Right. Sure. So, um, so uh, the um
1: the really the first (laughs) the first uh neoliberal project to so what was the idea the idea was that um already in the 1950s and 60s and 70s there was already this kind of intellectual critique of things of things monopoly right yeah um there's this pushback um uh it's coming both from from the left and from the right in terms of that you want to be able to have uh, more decentralized um, uh, power, uh, decentralized um, uh, uh, democracy, energy democracy. And it's coming from the right, in terms of that um, the the idea of public ownership or regulation of private ownership was actually detrimental, Right. right? So that whole neoliberal process, um, and so that gets started to build up. And then the first instance uh, where this actually happens is 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 in my home country of Chile, and it was done at the wrong end of a gun. Yeah. Um, there was uh, 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 the the government that was elected in 1970, one of the first things they did is they nationalized the other 50% of of the electricity grid in Chile. Um, And then uh, after the the military coup of 1973, um, the uh, military government at the time brings in a series of reform measures that were basically um, to privatize and to reduce the size of the state in the country. And that was from, in terms of telecoms, in terms of all of the utilities were privatized and broken up. And so it's in 1980, that is uh, the, uh, the first uh, instance that I'm aware of, whereby a previously uh, national level vertically integrated company gets privatized and uh, broken up.
0: I mean, Chile has been called this kind of laboratory of neoliberalism. That's right? exactly I mean, it, is... it. That's exactly it. And the idea being, Chris,
1: was that um, the the economists who were advising them at the time um, continue to believe that that the transmission and distribution element of the grid continued to be monopolies, and what, what we call in economics uh, natural monopolies. That is to say that it wasn't efficient to have two sets of two sets of wires going to your house, yeah, right? Yeah. Natural monopoly, right? And so there was never really much competition in that, uh, and so they continued to be regulated along the ways that I just described through this kind of rate of return or cost of service regulation. Um and that's been the case everywhere here in Ontario, in the US, in France, in the UK, those uh, distribution and transmission segments which account for about fifty percent of the kind of investment in the grid, generation usually is about fifty percent fifty five percent, transmission is about ten percent, um, and then distribution is about 25 to thirty percent so the 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 distribution and transmission were always are not put it this way from a policy perspective I've never really entered the discussion in terms of the introduction of the competition yeah. the introduction of the competition was always at the generation level yeah right true. and so the idea being is that um, you privatize that and so therefore you um, you get additional funds for the government um, and you also have to break it up, because the idea being is that um, in the old vertically integrated company, uh, you'd go through these planning processes whereby together with the regulator, you determine what is forecast um, you know, demand, what are the technological developments, how much money do I have, how much money do I want to spend? And then you kind of say, okay, well, this is what I'm going to do, and this is going to go into the rate base. Um the generation, electric- uh, sorry, the generation competition idea is quite separate, and this is refers to the kind of the energy only markets, which is to say that um, we don't need um, this to be planned either um, by a, a, a ministry or a state regulator. We will allow the market to determine what is the optimal level of generation capacity. Mm -hmm. Right. And so in order to do that, uh, you can't have one person deciding that by definition. So you necessarily and this is the case in Chile and this is the case in the UK and this is the case in Ontario and um, and in other countries, is that once you introduce this competitive market for generation. It's not just enough to introduce the market, you have to actually carve up the generation assets of your former monopoly and sell them off to be able to actually have multiple operators that can actually create the market. Right. Right. So, so in Ontario, OPG gets broken up and is told as a result, as a process of restructuring to sell Bruce Power. Yeah. So that's where Bruce Power comes out of. Right, and they get sold all these kinds of things, right? And so um, that process occurs, starts occurring, first in, in Chile, nineteen eighty. Um, in the UK, after after the the the, the breaking of the 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 um, coal workers' union by Maggie Thatcher in 1984-85. she introduces in nineteen eighty six the very same process that occurred in Chile previously, and that is the breaking up of the National Coal Board, the breaking up of the central um, uh, what is it called electrical generating board, and it's a privatization and uh, introduction of competition, right, and then that process goes on in the United States, and so at the state level, you get about maybe 25 states who actually do this from the 1990s on. Okay. In, in, in Canada, uh, out of our ten provinces, three do it.
0: And is there any is there any underlying? Is it like blue states and red states, or like who who does it, who doesn't, why? Um, is there a pattern? Well, there?
1: actually, it, it's one of those. It's one of those ironies, Chris, that in the United States, it's actually the blue states who do this. Interesting. Okay. Yeah, it's one of the interesting things. Like for example, it's like California's, the New Yorks, the New Jerseys. You know all of the Illinois of the world they are mostly um, what they call restructured mm-hmm. um, and then you know the, the 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 this is swath of in the center the Nebraska's the the Georgias the Florida's are all traditional mm-hmm. right and, and it's any anyway, there's a there's um there's a, a bunch of academic articles that are interesting to read about that and we can talk about that. But, yeah. but certainly in Canada, out of our 10 provinces, you have Alberta uh, who restructured and, 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 and privatized in the 1990s. You have um, uh, Ontario, 1997, uh, and that was... Uh, uh, and then uh, I think uh, it was Nova Scotia who privatized yeah. but did not restructure, also in 1990. So, so this big push of restructuring and privatization occurs uh, in the 1990s. Um, there was not really much privatization going on in the U.S. because it was mostly
0: already private, right? right? Um, but the utilities, the was, generating side was being broken up. I mean, does this give you a kind up. of like uh, you know, there's in terms of conducting an experiment. You want to control all the variables. Totally. That's uh, exactly yeah. any yeah. conclusions. Yeah. But does this give you any big conclusions you can draw? Indeed, indeed. And so it's been twenty years,
1: twenty five years. Um, and so um, everyone kind of says, "Oh, it's been ten years, twenty years, thirty years. Let's kind of review what's happened. What have we learned, what we have learned?" Yeah. Um, so I just want to make sure i'm I'm fair to like the people that I've been reading, um, but the that put it this way, even the strongest proponents of of the regulation, have, been, uh, have, have recognized that the gains from restructuring, especially in the US and the UK, have been at the very most modest. Okay. They have not been the very significant gains that everyone expected of this huge kind of reductions in prices, this huge amount of innovation. It has not been successful. That's the most optimistic people the most you know, pessimistic people have said, no, this has been, it hasn't really worked out. The, the numbers are quite interesting. Uh, most uh, uh, restructured states, prices for consumers have increased compared to the traditional states. Uh, and we're talking by, you know, by five, 10, 15%. Um, and that's in the US. Um, we see exactly the same here in, in, in Canada. Uh, a recent CD Howe um, uh, study um, uh, established the total system costs um, for, you know, nine of the 10 provinces. Um, and, you know, it's not surprising that the, the, the ones with the three highest prices are the three restructured uh, provinces Alberta, Nova Scotia, and
0: Ontario. So, what are, what are some explanations for this? Well, because I mean, again, I'm I'm always trying to being in healthcare. Yeah. I'm, I'm trying to sort of draw it back yeah. to that. Yeah. You know, and in yeah. healthcare, the administrative costs just absolutely yeah. balloon. I think in the U.S., it's five right. times the cost we have to. Is it administration costs? Is it?
1: Well, look, I mean, it, partly it's administration costs. Um, ERCOT, the famous ERCOT in Texas. Um, their administration costs are 250 million dollars a year, right? Okay. That cost wasn't 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 uh, uh, that's you know, high. That I guess. Was or, yeah, that's very high. But right. it's also that's just purely administrative costs, right? right? So all of these RTOs, et cetera, are are high, but a lot of it a lot of it has to do, and this starts to get about you know um, not only the efficiency. But also the equity aspects of 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 of, of uh, you know uh, whether it's energy or telecoms, um, and uh, you know most uh, there's there's a series of economists who have basically said that whatever efficiency gains may have occurred uh, have been mostly captured by the private sector in in the context of deregulation. So one of the things about one of the things about regulation was that uh, a regulator sits down, there's a transparent process to be able to determine uh, what is just and equi- just and reasonable rates, and you take into account that um, the productivity gains that occur in the sector are equitably shared between uh, the private enterprise and consumers right? right so that's one of the things that regulators do um, what uh, the most pessimistic of economists who would look at this in the United States would say is that there may or may not have been some efficiency gains but all of the efficiency gains were actually captured by uh, the private utilities and were not passed on in terms of in terms of Either better service or lower prices to consumers, and, and what so about, basically yeah. it was it was it was like it was like the shareholders
0: who right. gained the most. And I'm I just I want to understand the mechanisms behind that. But you know, one of the features that really blew my mind about ERCOT um, and some of these really deregulated markets is these sort of five minute bidding wars. It seems like right. you know base load is not rewarded uh you know peak peak demand power that meets peak demand is is rewarded up to nine thousand dollars per megawatt hour from uh, i yep. think i don't know what the base rate is but it's some, it's that's something like 900 times the base rate or something yeah um, yeah for sure i mean yeah. that's that these these just seem like you know incredible amounts of volatility is that <laughs> is that some of the mechanism as to as to how these potential efficiencies get um privatized um yeah or,
1: yeah, I mean, it's one of them. You know, or um, is there
0: is there like I heard with Enron in California mm-hmm. there was certain manipulations to actually kind of create artificial scarcity to drive up prices yeah, like- yeah. Yeah.
1: Uh you know, a lot of it had to do with a lot of it had to do with um um That there was just, there was, you know, like we don't even have to think about it as like a nefarious kind of affair like that, Chris. It's just the the way in which, the way in which that if there is um, a way to be able to um, extract, uh, I'm just gonna, sorry about that, Um, where you're able to generate uh, efficiencies and 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 if there is insufficient uh, way in which you can um, pass on those those savings to consumers I think I think you will do that mm-hmm. um, but but beyond that um, you know uh, we'd have to go into uh, a bit more of a detailed explanation <laughs> about sure, that. Sure. but 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 the 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 numbers are 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 very surprising because uh, you would think that a regulated or a deregulated market would be more you know efficient, would have lower prices, but that is simply not the fact. There's a whole bunch of different uh, explanations for that, Chris. Um, but but one of the other, Components of that are the environmental environmental mandates uh, that were more prevalent in deregulated uh, markets than they were in in regulated markets. So I wanted to get a bit about yeah. that as well. Let's, right? Yeah, let's dive into that. Right. Yeah. Right. So, so, um, so you get this restructuring. Um, you know, you get this restructuring in the UK. You don't get it. You don't have restructuring in France right, they maintain a EDF, a vertically integrated company, you, and in a bunch of other countries. Um, and then what you get is you get two different, you get um, uh, starting, you know, 1990s, 2000, you have environmental movement and the idea of, of greening the grid, right? And in the absence of, of a carbon tax and any other kind of national policies, the way in which, the way in which, uh, um, uh, environmentalists uh, push for the greening of the grid is to essentially, and it's the same case here in Ontario, is you you push for um, what are called environmental mandates, right? And the the term is, um, I think they're called uh, renewable portfolio standards, um, RPSs, and it basically says, look um, to a power company in, in, in California, Florida, or Ontario, where you basically say, look, you have to have, uh, X percent of your, your power generated by renewables, right? Um, and these mandates are present in about 30 states in the United, in, in the U.S. Um, And, you know, sometimes there, you know, you must have 15%, you must have 20%, 25%. And so it's the way in which outside of regulation, it's usually these are usually uh, established either by um, the state legislature, right? So, for example, the, you know, the California Senate or, you know, the Nebraska Senate, et cetera, uh, which is the same way it was done here in Ontario, which is through the, the legislature, uh, establishing certain, uh, uh, you know, the Green Energy Act, for example, and you basically start to load the system with these mandates that are um, that are externally imposed, right? The, mm-hmm. And and so one of the things that happens is that these are one of the pro- processes that starts to increase prices, and they increase prices more in deregulated in, in, in regulated uh, uh, states than in, in regulated states. Um, and one of the things that we found after the fact is that these price, these uh, renewable portfolio standards are being quite expensive. They have reduced um, the amount of greenhouse gases, um, but they've come at an extremely high price. Um, mostly um, uh, they're being estimated at between 150 to $200 per ton avoided, right? Um, and that compares to um, uh, the benchmark of a social uh, cost uh, of carbon of about 50 bucks, right? So in terms of cost benefit, it's a very expensive way to do it. Um, and also the other thing that, uh, we found is that the imposition of these, um, uh, these environmental mandates have also had um, a, a, a regressive effect in terms of that they're being expensive um, compared to sort of the bang for the buck that you get, but also being regressive in terms of that they, they place a greater burden on low-income families and households. And most of the beneficiaries have been kind of higher income households. And so this,
0: in terms of the pragmatics of that, um, this is as a result of, um, you know, juicy contracts that that's right. like feed-in tariffs that favor people who have the capital to take out a loan and put solar panels on their roof. And then, that's earn, right. you know, I think in t- Ontario, it's 44 cents per yep. kilowatt hour, I think up to 80 yep. cents per kilowatt hour, when the price of electricity is, you know, 13 cents per kilowatt hour on the grid. I wanted, to, I wanted to get into this a little bit with you because, you know, you're mentioning that there's kind of uh, attacks from the le- from the right, but also from the left on, right. um, you know, these uh, vertically oriented centralized grids. Um, and I think that might be surprising for some folks on the left. Um, you know, certainly I, I've, I've been developing my thinking a little bit on this and starting to really think of the grids as as a commons. Um, you know, that's, you know, it's an essential service It's in Robert Bryce's words, the network that underpins all of their networks, uh, the power went out at my hospital, uh, two days ago, I mean luckily we were saved by some batteries and pulling in a massive diesel generator but I mean the things we take for granted right right it's, it's essential services that depend on the grid and, and the addition of certain power sources that potentially fragilize the grid. Um, you know, these other issues of, you know, privatizing the profits from, you know, investors in, you know, these very cheap technologies like wind and solar, but not accounting for the, you know, the socializing of the costs of, of grid integration. So I wanted to get into a little bit of you know sure. this underlying politics and the ways in which the left, I mean, there was a, a recent piece I saw by Fred Stafford that was looking at um, some attacks from I believe some left-wing environmental groups on the TVA and calling for it to be split up so that there'd be more competition that would enable uh renewables uh investments to to happen. So let's let's uncrack these kind of left critiques and and what's going on there. Cause it, it it's kind of counterintuitive to me, but maybe my my kind of left isn't their kind of left. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um
1: well look, I mean I I can again, I I don't wanna uh I wanna be fair to to um know to that critique uh, because I don't want to you know put up a straw man and and all that kind of stuff Um, but but I I think the critique comes from um, the idea um, of a kind of non-responsive large entity whether it's private or public Um, and and certainly from a private perspective in the United States which is where a lot of this comes in I mean we get In Canada, Chris, I I tend to feel that um, a lot of the critiques that are kind of like come across the border by osmosis almost in terms of that, you know, when we think about power, you know, in Canada, we continue to have, uh, I want to say maybe 80, 85% of our power is public power, right? right? There are exceptions. But even in Alberta, which is you know this 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 liberalized, you know many of the generation uh, authorities are owned municipally, right? Right. Whether out of uh, you know Edmonton or Calgary, Um, you know certainly Manitoba Tel, you know Hydro Quebec, you know uh, BC Hydro, et cetera. These are all. Uh, public companies uh, in Newfoundland as well. So, you know, we're not, we're actually the opposite of the United States. If the United States is 85% private, maybe 5 or 10% municipal or co-op, and then a bit of public in terms of like the TVA, we're exactly the opposite. We're like 80% public, 10% private. Um, so so the idea that, you know, this, you um, know, uh, you know this left critique of private power and and an abusive private power where you think of like you know Mr. Burns in The Simpsons right yeah. that that doesn't that simply doesn't is not applicable and has not traditionally been applicable in Canada. so so I think there's a separate concern and the concern is about centralized power, right about non-responsive, Collective solutions and I think that's where part of it comes thing there's a bit of kind of libertarianism a little bit of you know being off grid being able to be your own utility that's the kind of I think critique that is coming from. Um, And yeah I mean to me, uh, it is surprising because it is it is you know, economically not efficient way to restructure your, your, your process. The, you know, the reason that we don't all, I don't know, uh, you know, uh, have, a, you know, um, a backyard garden and have poultry and have et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, we, that we treat our own sewage, et cetera, is that there are certain public entities and public goods whereby you know ideology aside just the pure economics of it is more efficient to be provided collectively quite separate from whether it's you know owned privately or publicly but mm-hmm. but the idea is that there are economies of scale and scope that these are natural monopolies and, and, and sure the technologies are sometimes different that you can have more distributed um, uh, systems um, but, you know, to me, it just doesn't make economic sense. It's much more driven by ideology. Um, so I don't know if there's, if that kind of answers your question. Yeah, I think that that gets to it a little bit. Okay. Okay. All right. Um, and so, uh, I wanted to talk about a bit about more nuclear because I know that you're interested yeah. in that. Um, and, and. I mean i guess
0: i guess my my curiosities uh and i, I certainly want to hear sort of uh, where you're where you're coming from but you know in particular what i was kind of leading in with is the future of uh the finance of of nuclear right um in this kind of liberalized electricity market scenario yep um you know i was talking with a friend of mine and and we were just we were talking about the characteristics of Ontario's nuclear plants where you have you know, four or more commonly eight reactors on one Mm -hmm, single mm -hmm, site, you know, mm -hmm. these serialized build of the same design, uh, really taking advantage of economies of scale. I mean, even when we were building coal plants in Ontario, they were massive, like four gigawatt plants, right? Yeah, yeah, Um, yeah. You know, and and that was a from what I was, uh, my friend was explaining that was a result of you know this being publicly financed and the ability to think, okay, well, that's how are we going to most efficiently provide the service? And in that era right. of adding on five or six percent of our uh, our electricity load per year, that that made a lot of sense. And in the era of needing to decarbonize quickly, that makes a lot of sense. But it seems like we're kind of confined now by our current um, electricity markets to that not being possible. And and that's when ideas of you know smr advanced nuclear maybe become more attractive because maybe those are malleable and can fit into private funding model or or renewables become more um achievable so that's that's kind of an area i really wanted to okay
1: yeah no i'm happy i'm happy i'm happy to delve into that yeah so so um one of the one of the um so whether you you know so whether you listen to people like the brits um sort of preeminent Energy economist David Newberry um, here in the United States, um, a guy called Severin Borenstein, uh, uh, Jaskow. Um, you know, these are the big proponents of, in the economics field um, uh, of of the studying and analyzing. Initially, proponents of of you know, restructuring and privatization. And then, um, then kind of in, in 2020 hindsight, um, across the board, there is a recognition that, that the, the, the markets have been successful at certain things in terms of efficiency. They have not been particularly good in terms of sharing of the benefits to consumers or no better than the old system. But one thing that they've really failed at is at uh promoting the incentives for uh for investment um and so what you get in these energy markets uh these energy only markets is that um they start to become the exception rather than the rule quite early on in the process people recognize that 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 to be able to provide uh uh, sufficient investment that is long-lived, whereby you're going to have to have decades to be able to recoup your costs. That that liberalized energy-only markets are not conducive to this. This was not something that was foreseen when initially these restructurings occurred. Right. This was not people seeing, oh boy one of the downsides of introducing these markets is that we're not gonna have sufficient incentives for people to invest in the long-term viability and reliability of the bid, of, of the grid. But eventually people started to come to that and it was not such a big problem in the 1990s, 2000, 2010s because basically what was happening is that we already had a fair bit of capacity going into these Processes, as I mentioned, in terms of the UK or the US or France, you know, they grew quite uh, extensively, uh, you know, until the '70s and '80s. Demand started to kind of stagnate, and so we didn't these this crisis of reliability of lack of investment, whether it's from the private or the public. We only start to see that, you know, over the last ten years in markets. And analysts, including economists, are starting to see this as a problem, right? Whereby these markets are doing some things pretty good in terms of dispatch, in terms of efficiency, but they're not providing the kinds of long-term um, uh, uh, invest sorry, the long-term environments to be able to provide sufficient investment. And this is what we refer to again in economics as a market failure, right? Mm. Basically, um, the markets aren't doing what they should be doing, which is, or they're doing one thing they're doing, they're doing well, is they're providing efficient dispatch, et cetera, et cetera, they're providing marginal costs, but because of the design of the markets and because of the, uh, the addition to the market of subsidized renewables through all these processes that we've, we've talked to, which drive the actual market clearing price even lower than would otherwise be.
0: And just, that, just, to, just to get into that really quickly, that's just this idea that you have a resource that can really dramatically overproduce, it's getting enough subsidies that it can sell for zero cents or negative price. Or that, even
1: negative, that's exactly and knock, yeah, right. And
0: knock other reliable sources off the grid and penalize them, is that? Right, that's exactly. Is that unique to deregulated markets or is that? It is, it is, it is. Okay. Because
1: in, 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 regulated, in, in regulated traditional markets, there is no market.
0: Right. So there yeah, is how, no,
1: there is no clearing price.
0: And again, this clearing price is that idea of like an every five minute bidding. That's it, right. And that's, that's what right. drives a lot of these administrative costs and yeah. volatility yeah. in the price. Just, just it's for, the volatility it. in the price. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. so, so in a, in a vertically or, or a, uh, integrated uh, traditional market, how does that work again? That's just, you're just paid like, you. I don't know. Uh, can you tell me how, how, oh, right. So, so for example,
1: so, so um, so uh, all right. So, um, uh, Alberta. I'm going to use Alberta. So in Alberta, you have uh, a gas generation station and you have some wind and you have uh, some hydro, right? And so um, there's a market clearing price and people put in five five minute dispatches. And so um, there's this merit order which says, okay, look, I need X amount. And when I get to that X amount of kilowatt hours, I'm going to Pay that that kind of marginal uh, genera- uh, generator. That's the market clearing price, right? So it's not that it necessarily knocks out all the other people. It does the people that are higher, but that establishes the price, right? That that everyone gets, regardless of how much they bid, right? So for example, what's happening in in uh, in nuclear power in 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 uh, deregulated markets. Um, I don't know, say in New York or Illinois, whatever. Um, you have the prices, the marginal prices that everyone is getting paid, are so low that not only not only hydro, but not only uh, uh, um, not only nuclear, but also hydro, are actually not. It's below their marginal cost. Right. Right. And part of that is just the design of the market combined with. Um, um, the, the addition of these renewables uh, on a subsidized basis. Mm-hmm. Um, and also just the nature of the economics of the renewables that are very much, you know, zero marginal cost. Um, so when these markets get designed in the 1980s, right? They weren't designed uh, necessarily for generation um, uh, uh, technologies that had virtually zero marginal cost, right? And so you have this design. Can just, sorry, can
0: you, can you just explain zero marginal cost again, real quick? Sorry. So, so um, um, the, the the
1: the the operational cost of a um, gas um, uh, a gas plant, a natural right. gas
0: the workers, gas plant, the fuel, the
1: the workers, the fuel, but also the fuel, right? right. Um, uh, they have their their fixed costs right? Yeah. Which is the actual plant, but on an ongoing hourly basis, gotcha. yeah. their only cost is the, the price of the gas. Yeah. Um, for a wind farm, once you've purchased the turbine, yeah. your marginal costs of producing an extra kilowatt hour is virtually zero.
0: Gotcha. Okay.
1: Right. And so that's that cost that goes into that cost is what goes into the pool, into the market. And it starts to drive the costs down regardless of, 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 uh, and so what's happening is that there are certain, uh, like hydro dams and uh, and nuclear plants have different economics. They have a different mix of the fixed versus the marginal cost. And so um, what you see is that, nuclear plants uh, plants in this um, liberalized environment um, sometimes can't even meet their marginal cost, which is why right. they're having, you know financial problems. Um, but but more generally, what we're seeing is that um, we, you know these analysts are starting to look at the introduction of renewables, their particular cost characteristics, um, it's not that they're necessarily less costly or more costly, but they may have lower marginal cost and higher, uh, kind of fixed costs that was less important in regulated environments. We really m- cared about total cost.
0: Right. Be- and we regulated not... the total. And, and the because... total cost would have to be like the, the, paying for the backup costs of a source that's right. that comes on and off really rapidly. That's right.
1: Yeah, that's exactly it. And so, um, it, you know, in that situation, people start to realize that these markets um, have a fundamental flaw, which is that they're not sufficiently um, uh, producing incentives for long-term investment that is going to be required in decarbonization, right. and just generally in terms of reliability. And so they start these market designers, economists, start to add little tweaks. To be able to kind of take those into account, and those are called like capacity mechanisms, right? So you have an energy-only market, but certain other markets, the the RTO pays people two or three years in advance to make sure that they have sufficient capacity, okay. right? So they're dealing with this market failure by adding additional secondary markets right but they're only so, looking two or three years in advance they're not and, looking and,
0: and who's responsible for reliability because that i think that's the, the key differences yeah. in these regulated markets it was right. this vertically oriented thing and the whole thing was we're gonna we promise we're not you're not gonna have a that's blackout right. we're right. gonna make right. sure that you know and we'll do whatever it takes and we'll contract x y and z sources for that and nowadays that's right. is there anyone the bottom RTO. lining that Okay, yeah, the, it's the RTO
1: mostly. Yeah, it's mostly the regulator. Yeah, it's mostly the regulator who's responsible for making sure that they have capacity. But again, it, it's they're trying to um, kind of like a, a stopgap to deal with this fundamental design issue that a lot of you know these these prominent economists have basically given up on because they're saying that um, that these are not. Likely to work in the future if we need to be able to expand, um, uh, you know, uh, generation to actually meet our decarbonization um, objectives. Okay. Um, and so, there are now four or five different ways in which people are thinking about nuclear and other firm uh, generation sources to be able to deal with these challenges, both in restructured and in traditional markets, right? Uh, So that's what I wanted to kind of discuss with you, if if that's okay. Yeah, for sure. Cool. Um, So um, so for example, um, in Hinkley Point in the UK, uh, they have a a regulated, uh, sorry, uh, a a competitive market. um, But, they realized that um, there was this, this market failure whereby no private entity would ever try to go into a market um, where the prices were fluctuating, where we didn't know where the price would be next week, let alone five years, 10 years, 30 years, 50 years down the road. Right. Um, and so no one was willing to take you know, the, the, the chance to be able to, um, uh, to do that. And so what the ministry did there is they establish what is called a contract for differences, right? Uh, and this is sort of what we do here in, in, in Ontario as well, which is basically says, look, we're gonna sign a contract with you, whereby we're gonna guarantee you a certain price, which is what's called the strike price. Um, and it's going to be, say, ten cents, uh, ten cents per kilowatt hour, um, and we're going to pay you that regardless of what the actual market price is. Right. So if the market price is two, and and we've guaranteed you ten, we're going to pay you ten. We're going to, we're going to, you can get two from the market, and we're going to pay you eight on top, right? If the market price, in fact, goes to sixteen. You're going to have to pay us back the difference between the 10 right. that we've guaranteed you uh, and and the um, and the uh, and the 16 that you're actually getting from the market. So that's one way in which, uh, in 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 restructured markets, um, one of the kind of regulatory and economic mechanisms via which governments have started to use to be able to promote long-term investment including of nuclear facilities
0: mm-hmm. okay
1: um and that's been approved that was approved um and signed off by you know the european commission because uh among other people austria and germany uh peeled it <laughs> because they thought it was anti-competitive but that was that was that was approved. because it was
0: anti-competitive or because they just hate nuclear
1: they both, but I mean, they're using it because
0: of the anti-competitive.
1: Yeah, they took it. They took them to the to the court of
0: justice. uh, You know, I want to probably wrap up soon because we've been going for about an hour. Um, But, you know, I think a big question on people's mind. There's obviously a lot of politically motivated closures of nuclear, particularly in the U.S. um, Right. Point and Diablo Canyon stick out. But there's also like so-called economic um, motivated closures. I think Byron and Dresden might be included in that where their operator, I think Exelon is asking for subsidies or else they're going to, they're going to shut them down. Right. And in terms of my basic understanding of nuclear economics, you know, you have these enormous upfront capital costs, interest becomes a significant portion of yep. the, uh, the running of the plant and the economics. But once these assets are 30 years old, they're supposed to just be paid off their debts and they have low fuel costs. They're supposed to be just cranking out electricity and getting paid well for it. So why, why are these plants economically stressed? Right, that, so, is that because so of market goes, distortions, or well, okay. it's it's just the market, right? So
1: mm-hmm. so so uh, so in Illinois and in um, in New York, which are two liberalized states, um, the the market clearing price is is below below the marginal the 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 marginal cost of producing. Um, Nuclear power in those in those two in those two states, right? So, for example, you know, it may um, it may take um, you
0: like, wh- know. So why if the is market- that? Yeah, wh- why, why is that?
1: that? Well, because the market because the market price is not reflecting um, is not reflecting is or is not valuing um, the idea. It's only valuing.
0: The f- every people, five minutes. That's right. That's yeah. right.
1: That's right. So that's yeah. the, that's the market failure component of it, Chris. So, and, and if so that nuclear markets- plant
0: goes offline or is it likely to drive up the, the generating costs? Like, is that just an illusion? Cause you, once you have that secure base load, then you can, right. you know, just value the, the peaks. Right. But if, if you don't have the secure base load, is that, yeah. is that going to, yeah, well,
1: markets don't value that. So yeah. that's the thing, right? It was in a in a traditionally integrated company uh, industry. You could actually talk about and say, "Listen, what is it that we value? Do we value reliability? Do we value right. capacity, or do we value the one single thing, which is the market clearing price for those five minutes, right?" right. And so that's one of the problems that's happening is that um, the 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 um, the market the market clearing price. Is just low for not only nuclear but for a lot of other things. Um, a lot, of, like I think even for hydro, certain parts of hydro are not covering their costs. And it's not that. And again, it's just a pure focus on marginal costs rather than the overall costs and the benefits brought around by electric, by nuclear power. So one of the things that people are doing in uh, both in New York and in Illinois is they're introducing uh, some of these what they call zero uh, zero emission credits, right? So in the same way that uh, these uh, renewable uh, portfolio standards were introduced to or mandated to uh, to introduce uh, wind and solar into these markets, associated with that uh, there were subsidies through what are called RECs, which are the renewable energy credits, right? So if you're a wind producer, um, uh, you were. Uh, it was mandated that you would come in. In addition to that mandate, you would get two kinds of different benefits, which provides you these subsidized costs. One is you'd get either a production or a generation tax credit, which is the way in which most of the United States uh, renewables um, industry is financed. And you would get a renewable um, energy credit, which is something that you could then sell in a secondary market to further um, provide you with um, uh, additional uh, revenues. So between your production and investment tax credits and your RECs, um, it was very, very expensive, right? And that's where some of these costs, these expensive costs come from in terms of the introduction of renewables. So what's happening in Illinois and New York is that the legislature there um, uh, introduced what are called zero emission credits, right? Which is basically um, uh, they were providing, Um, these credits to recognize that the nuclear plants were generating electricity with zero carbon. So that is to say, to try to deal with that market failure whereby the marginal cost is only valuing the price of electricity. It's not valuing that it is you know, that it is produced sustainably, that it is produced without, you know, carbon emissions. And so they introduced these um, zero emission credits in order to, among other things, to help um, on an on ongoing basis, the difference between its operating costs, right, and the marginal price that yeah. they were being able to get from the market.
0: Gotcha. Okay. I guess one final question. There's the, I could talk to you for hours because this is an area I'm eager to be more educated on, but for the sake of our listeners, um, you know, I think there's a big question about, you know, in sort of an all of the aboveism approach to, uh, combating climate change. We need everything. Right. Um, you know, there's renewable bros and nuclear bros, and there's lots of kind of energy factionalism in this debate, but right you know, a question I've really been wrestling with is, is whether nuclear and wind and solar can, which are the dominant tools for decarbonization in terms of something that's scalable and not dependent on, um, you know, hydrology or, you know, geothermal, uh, resources and things like that, that are highly localized, mm-hmm. um, you know, is whether these, whether these guys can get along on the grid. And I mean, certainly in Ontario, um, there's physical reasons why they don't get along very well, um, you know, with wind in particular producing really out of sync with demand at nighttime right. and in low demand seasons like spring and fall and initially I think they were allowed first access onto the grid to sort of support them and that would knock nuclear plants offline nuclear yep. would be off for three days wind would die down gas would step in we were I think saved 200 million dollars um, of gas when we said okay no you're gonna have to curtail the wind we're gonna keep nuclear online um, and it's also better for emissions um, right so there, there's those sort of um, I guess physics based reasons or or just the pragmatics of the sources, but in a liberalized energy market, can nuclear and wind and solar get along or i mean is that is that I guess this is a zero zero emission credit system that's attempting to do things like that, but it is from an economics perspective, when you have a source that can come online um with zero marginal costs, bid so low and you know make a pile of money because no one else can compete right. Yeah, you know, can they work together? Is that? Yeah, um, I, I think my
1: my my kind of evolving view on this is is the answer is no. Is that um, I think I think one of the things we've learned over the last twenty or thirty years is that there are certain uh, attributes of markets um, in the electricity sector that do things very well. And there are the things that that markets don't do very well and so one of the one of the ongoing debates is about um, basically carving out different components of the market uh, of the sector um, and basically um, uh, moving back some of the uh, some of the mark like in markets put it this way in markets that have liberalized which is for example you know the UK's of the world half of the United States and like 20 or thirty percent of Canada right in those markets um, what we're what I see the trend towards is basically this this bifurcation whereby you have certain markets certain certain components that uh, that uh, that for where um, uh, renewables in particular can work relatively well uh, to do certain things and, and the kinds of um, market signals that are coming from those particular um, uh, uh, generation technologies do not have to basically mess up the rest of the, the, the market and yes. so what we're seeing is we're seeing that um, uh, increasingly uh, economists are, are saying that these that, that that the markets were not designed to be able to incorporate uh, both these very low marginal cost things uh, such as wind and solar and the more traditional generational um, Uh, technologies. And so we're going to have to necessarily separate them out, which is essentially what we've done in in Ontario. Other than the dispatch, Chris, we have basically different segments of the the industry are dealt with separately. So, you know, the, you know, nuclear is either done by contract or by regulation, Um, you know, uh, wind and solar are exclusively by fits and contracts, right? Mm. Um, and so that's the way I think whereby that you're going to be able to have both the benefits um, uh, of of sort of five-day, uh, sorry, five-minute uh, market clearing processes where you're going to get some very low prices to the benefit of consumers as long as it's not subsidized. And you're going to be able to have a different component whereby you're going to um, be able to guarantee reliability, um, zero cost carbon, and being able to provide that if the government doesn't want to do it, there's going to be incentives for, uh, for the private enterprise to be able to commit to, you know, five year, 10 year, 20 year, 30, 40, 50 years. Mm-hmm. So, so I I see that uh, this experiment of purely liberalized energy only markets um, has not been successful. It was good for twenty years, but it's not going to be serving us well into the future. And but you know I don't want to throw away the baby. in the, Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, but but there's other components that are equally uh, important that we need to be able to think about how best to achieve. Um you know, our decar- decarbonization objectives?
0: yeah two well, one, I'll wrap it into one big question. I'll try and hold you to like a minute or two to answer, sure. but sure. Um, I guess the question is sort of can we go back um, politically and secondly, or maybe more importantly, um, is there a future? Can large-scale nuclear be built again within these liberalized energy markets? I'm not sure if Vogel is being built in an unregulated or regulated one. Is there, is there ever going be...
1: It's regulated.
0: So in an unregulated market, yeah. are yeah. we ever going to see large nuclear yeah. being built again?
1: Yeah. So on the first question is, yes, we can go back. Um, California went back after Enron, right? They right. liberalized and then they pushed back, okay. right? And basically... Um, uh, California was the Fukushima uh, of liberalization. <laughs> Literally 2000 was like all of the regulated, all the regulated states that moved on to deregulated. Yeah. Nothing happened after 2000. They all learned their lesson. And okay. so th- what you have now, the structure you have now is basically the structure that, that developed from 1990 to 2000. At 2000, that was it. It was done. Mm-hmm. Right. Everyone learned their lesson. No politician, no legislature, no regulator was willing to go through, given what had happened in, in California. And so, so that's why only ex-
0: 25 states are liberalized and the other 25 aren't? Or? That's right. I got you. Okay.
1: Right. The first 25 did it in those 10 years.
0: Matt, right? re- so, I mean, not to get into the whole Enron thing, but the re-regulation yeah. of California is part of what really sunk Enron in terms of hitting their bottom line, because they've been sort of manipulating markets. and That's right. That's money. right. That's right. Yeah. Okay.
1: yeah. Okay. And it was a success. And who knows? I mean, we'll, we'll see what happens after Texas.
0: Right. right. I mean, it could be after Texas that
1: people start realizing that, yeah, it is time to either re-regulate, restructure, or carve out a portion, as I was just saying five right. minutes ago, carve out a portion where you say, listen, this portion is really what's important, reliable, and we have to be able to introduce new things there. Right. Um, the UK, the Western pioneer in terms of, of you know, regulation, Thatcherite, economics, and all that kind of stuff, uh, 2000, uh, 2013 um, uh, returned m- to many of the very same Um, ideas that that they had jettisoned, you know, uh, 35 years, you know, earlier. Everyone talked about everyone talked about that. This is the the new CEGB in in the UK. So so there are lessons and people do take these things. There's analysts who are working on these issues, but it does require political commitment. Now, in terms of liberalization, look, half the markets in the world, we haven't even talked about China or Russia, right. et cetera. These are not liberalized markets, right? The liberalized markets we're referring to are the you know, countries of Europe, the UK, uh, you know, North America, right? right. Everyone else has not, did not take on this kind of like euphoria of restructuring,
0: right? right?
1: This is very much a kind of like uh, Western idea. Uh, with a few exceptions in, you know, for example, in Chile. Um, And so, you know, in those markets, nuclear will continue to do what it needs to do. Within the West, you still have a a certain number of of liberalized markets. And in those circumstances, it will be very difficult for nuclear because of its characteristics of the requirement to be able to um, uh, be able to uh, finance something that is not going to have a payback for 30, 40, 50 years,
0: right.
1: to finance that and not to be able to hedge the risk um, in terms of future prices where those kinds of uh, capital markets simply do not exist, which is right. another form of a, of, a, of a market failure. That'll be very difficult to do it. So what you have to do is you have to do, for example, what the British government did uh, for Hinkley Point, which is to provide these yeah. kinds of special carve-outs that were initially invented for renewables, in fact, <laughs> right? <laughs> but, but economically, they're now being used for nuclear. The zero-emission credits, for example, in Illinois and New York, 50-year contracts by the government of Ontario with Bruce Power, yeah. for example. Um, for SizeWell in the UK, uh, we have uh, basically a proposal to be able to finance it through uh, rate of return regulation, what they call the regulated asset base. So, so it's all kind of like you know back to the future in a way, you're going back to the regulatory tools and mechanisms that were developed 50, 60, 70 years ago that were proven to be able to uh, provide a steady stream of revenues to be able to make a project such as nuclear bankable You're going back to those kinds of processes. It's not going to be likely possible in an energy-only market where there's virtually no guarantee of tomorrow's price, let alone the price of, you know, 20 years from now. And when you're competing against highly subsidized uh, renewable uh, renewable technologies.
0: Yeah. Okay. Well, I think we'll have to leave it there. Um, fascinating conversation, and and I, I probably will have you back to to deep dive this a bit more. I'm just particularly interested again in in looking at um, you know why the left tends to often line up with these are I guess kind of conveniently with some of these liberalized uh, energy market ideas when it's when it's convenient to their technologies of choice. So be interested to have you back to explore that a little bit more. But this has been really eye opening. Um, thanks for reaching out to me again, uh, other listeners, if uh, if you have a, an area that you're really passionate about, um, feel free to chat with me, I might have you on. Um, Edgardo, where can people find you and your, your work uh, online? Um, well, I'm on the,
1: the initial blogging that I did uh, on the Ontario electricity sector was in the Progressive Economic Forum, which is just what it sounds like. It's a group of progressive economists who blog about different things, so progressive economics. Uh, and I'm on Twitter at uh, at, at uh, E underscore R underscore um, Sepulveda. Um, we'll put that in the so, show notes. Yeah, I'll put that in show notes for, right. for sure. Yeah, 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 yeah.
0: Okay. All right, Edgar, thanks, thanks so much for coming on.
1: Okay, thanks, Chris. Bye, it was a pleasure.
0: If you enjoyed the podcast, please make sure to subscribe, like, and review us on your podcast platform of choice. Until next time, guys.